Well, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Graham. My wife and I have been tra- uh, attending here for about the last five years or so. And I've been part of the discipleship class that Pastor Andrew started a few years ago. And when the opportunity came to preach this summer, as he's on sabbatical, I was eager to study in order to understand Scripture better myself, and also to, to attempt to convey it better to you all, so that we can all grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. So in the last sermon that I was privileged to deliver from behind this podium, we did an overview on the book of Jude. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms. Chapter 119. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to go there. But turn to Psalm chapter 13. And we're going to dive into that in just a little bit. Psalm 13 is a short little chapter, six verses. And as we look at it, sometimes we feel like David did at the beginning of this psalm. We feel like God has forgotten us, that we are separated from Him, and that we have to solve our own problems. For example, like when the fires are burning and the wind keeps on blowing them toward farms and homes. Or like when we get laid off from our job and our efforts to find other work are fruitless. Sometimes it might seem like that when we can't understand the material that we have to study and deadlines for projects and tests are coming due. Or maybe we feel like God's forgotten us and we're on our own when housework, ho- household responsibilities keep piling up and the needs of the little people in the household are greater than the energy to meet them. That's the perspective that we observe in Psalm chapter 13. So as we look at the psalm, it starts with this phrase, to the choir master, a psalm of David. That's verse 1 in the, in the Hebrew Bible. We often think of verse 1 as being a little bit, early, little bit later on. But let's look at who this is done by. Psalm 13 is written by David. And we often remember him as the greatest king that Israel ever had. He's often held as the standard of what godliness looked like for the kings of Judah. And you'll see that as you go, if you do a study on the kings, you'll see that so-and-so followed the Lord, or he followed in the footsteps of his father David. Or if he was bad, he did not follow in the footsteps of his father David. He, David was kind of the, the gold standard, let's, uh, shall we say, of, of the kingdom and of godliness in the throne. We often think of David's high points, like the battle that he won over Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, or the conquest of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5. David defeated the Edomites in 2 Samuel 8, or he defeated the Amorites, Ammonites sorry, and the Syrians in 2 Samuel 10, or times when he was consumed with worship and zeal for God, such as when the ark came to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. The times that he spared Saul's life when Saul was pursuing him. Or when David sought to honor the covenant with Jonathan in seeking out anyone of the household of Saul to whom he could show kindness for Jonathan's sake in 2 Samuel chapter 9. What we often forget or overlook is that much of David's life was actually incredibly difficult. 
He was the youngest of seven brothers. Tell me that that's not a challenge. He was looked down on as a youth. He had two personal direct attempts to murder him by the King Saul. He was hounded for years by Saul who wanted to kill him and drove him from his home and his inheritance. He was forced to live in a foreign country, the country of the Philistines, for fear of his life. While he was there, he encountered the kidnapping of his family by the Amalekites. He experienced the death of an infant child. He was frequently at war. David encountered the rape of his daughter by one of his own sons. He experienced the murder of that son by another one of his own sons. And he was forced to run for his life from his own son who was attempting to take the throne and experienced the loss of that son in battle. And yet, in spite of all these things, David is known as a man after God's own heart. How does he do that? The progression of this psalm, chapter 13, helps us to understand his mindset and helps us to understand how God wants us to react in difficulty. So Psalm 13, as we mentioned before, is six verses, and it's divided neatly into three little parts of two verses each. Verses 1 and 2 are David's remonstrance. We might consider that his protest. Verses 3 to 4 are David's request or his petition. And, David, and verses 5 and 6 are David's resolution or his praise. So let's look at each one of those points individually. Verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So it consists of a series of questions, four starting with how long. Questions to God are not uncommon through Scripture. Think of the suffering of Job or the writers of the Psalms, and there's a pile of examples there. Isaiah asked God how long in Isaiah 6 verse 11 when God told him to be a witness to the, the people of Judah. Daniel asked how long a couple of times. The minor prophet Habakkuk was full of questions and asked how long in Habakkuk 1 verse 2. Zechariah asked how long. And later on in Revelation, the martyred saints under the altar Ask how long. Interestingly, God did not see fit to provide a definitive answer to all of them. Certainly, Isaiah did get a a definitive answer in Isaiah 6, but Job was never given an answer to any of his questions. The martyrs in Revelation had to wait a little while longer, but there was no time frame given. And many of the writers of Psalms never got a recorded answer. We don't always get an answer, an answer that we think we need when we pray. I'm sure that at some point all of us have prayed for an answer or a solution that we felt was critical and never, see, never, saw, the, never saw an answer. Sometimes we get an answer in the truth that we read in our Bible reading or through a truth that is preached to us from the Word of God or encouraged to us from, from a friend. 
And other times it feels like we move forward with what seems to be the option that is the most honoring to God. And we don't seem to have a clear, a clear perspective. It doesn't mean that we follow our heart. We're going to deal with that a little bit later on. Because we base our faith not on a fickle, subjective feeling, but on the unchanging character of our faithful God. What I am saying here is sometimes we have a clear direction when we pray. Other times it seems like our prayers barely hit the light bulbs. So as a part of David's first question in verse 1, it might be wise for us to understand more of whom it is that we are asking all these, that David is asking all these questions to. It is the Lord in all capital letters. And this is the translator's way of identifying the name of God that is being used in this case. It is Yahweh. We understand this as, uh, the, from the Hebrew spelling Y-H-W-H. And look at the occasion that God used to introduce Himself when He t spoke, first introduced this name. He's speaking to Moses, and if you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, we're going to spend a few minutes here, and it's worth a short detour from our text. This wasn't a, a planned thing, but it was really appropriate that we sang the great I am this morning. So I, Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to start reading at verse 6. God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. And in verse 6 he says, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, my children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the 
affliction of Egypt to the land of Canaan. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So I want to make a few points on this before we get back into Psalm 13, because I think it's going to be helpful as we understand, helpful in our understanding of 13 when we understand who God is a little bit better. In verse 14 of the passage that we just read in Exodus, I am, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. It refers to a self-existent entity. God is not limited. He doesn't need anything. He's not, uh, he's not strapped for other resources. He has everything he needs within himself. Verse 7, God says, or the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. There we see him, he identifies himself as a personal God. He's not above and just looking down on the people and their suffering without being moved by it. He's seen their suffering. He wants to act. And he's a covenantal God. He keeps his covenants. He makes promises. In verse 17, I promise that I will bring you out of the land, out of the affliction of Egypt. And he promises to bring them into a land of milk and honey. What is interesting to notice here about the Lord is that he doesn't limit himself. He doesn't give himself a label per se. And what I'm trying to say is maybe better done by an illustration. If I introduce myself to you as Graham, then there are certain limitations that are become obvious right off the bat. I'm a certain height, I'm a certain build, I'm a certain gender. My face is identified as having certain features and certain other characteristics so that by understanding those limitations, you understand who I am and anybody can recognize me. So to label yourself is to limit yourself. And therefore, for God to identify himself as I am is to provide himself no boundaries, no limitations. Friends, when we call out to God for help, do we actually consider who it is that we are asking? Do we think that the arm of the Lord is shortened, as the prophet Jeremiah says, or that he cannot reach us in our need? This is when we need his strength, his wisdom, and his grace the most. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul says when he prays, he gets a message from God to him and says, my grace is sufficient for you. James 1, verse 5 says that if anybody lacks wisdom, he needs to ask God and it will be given to him. God is a God having no limitations. Christian, apart from your declaration of repentance from sin and your subsequent confession of faith in Jesus Christ as the one Lord of your life and the only Savior from sin, this is the, one of the most fundamental tenets of your faith, that you believe what God has promised and that he, what He has promised, He is also able to perform. Looking back at Psalm chapter 13, David continues, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
We see Asaph, another psalmist, consider similar thoughts in Psalm 77, verses 6 to 9. Asaph says, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will He be favorable no more? Has His mercy ceased forever? Has, he, has His promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in His anger shut up His tender mercies? Selah. David has, or Asaph has as many questions as David does. And the parallel I was seeing there was the meditation within his heart. Or for the way David words it here in, chap, in verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul? What does that mean to take counsel in our souls? We take counsel in our soul when we try to find the solution to our problems within the realms of our own thoughts and our own experiences. And I have to confess, I do this often especially when I find myself in a stressful situation. I end up thinking through the conversations that I've had or the parts of the events that I've been involved in, and sometimes I end up speaking my part of the conversation out loud. So I can only imagine that if somebody heard me, they'd think I'd be a good, good candidate for the psychiatric ward. But the problem with these staff meetings with myself is that I'm limited to my own perspective, and you are too. When you and I take counsel in our own souls, what we're forgetting to do is that we don't, ha we don't have any of the answers for the, uh, the questions that we're asking. We're trying to find solutions, and we fail to come up with satisfactory ones, and this only intensifies the problem because we're no closer to the solution than when we started. This, in turn, increases our sorrow of heart and leads to a greater level of discouragement and defeat. It's a downward spiral. I'm sure that all of us have heard the advice at some point to follow your heart. We talked about that earlier. And this psalm is a great demonstration of the folly of that mindset. Why folly? Well, Jeremiah 17 says that our heart is deceitful and desperately sick. And Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 tell us that aside from the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are dead in our sins. So why would we trust something that is deceitful, desperately sick, and dead? So when we look at the condition of that, it's obvious that it's foolish for us to try to take counsel in our souls because that's the situation we're in. This is why we, like the psalmist, become discouraged when we take counsel in our souls, when we try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, no wonder in our culture around us, we see such an increase in mental illness, depression, anxiety, and a desperation to find meaning. Now, if we left the study right there, that would be a disaster, wouldn't it? We're looking for answers. We're trying to find our own counsel. We're feeling abandoned by God, and we're limited to our own finite resources for the solution that we're in. Instead of taking counsel in our own souls, what we should be doing is praying for wisdom according to James 1, and that's exactly what David does moving forward in the next couple of verses. Verse 3, 
David's uh, perspective changes a little bit. We might call this David's request. It says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Let's go through that just a little bit carefully here for a minute. He uses three verbs here in verse 3. Consider, answer, and light up. So the first verse that David, or the first verb that David uses here, consider. The Hebrew word means to scan or to look down on, consider, regard, have respect to. And does that give us an idea of what David is calling on God for? Sometimes we mistakenly think that God doesn't see what we're going through. Friends, He does. 2 Chronicles 16.9a says, like the first part of 16.9, says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. The second verb that David uses is answer. And it's, the, it's a primitive word, properly, like literally uh, translated is to eye or to heed, like to pay attention. The word answer is the idea of paying attention with, your, with the view of responding to the, requ- to the request. This is not like what we often do, or like what I often do anyways, when I'm busy in a task or scrolling through my phone and somebody asks me something. I hear them, but we're too absorbed in what we're doing to really understand the request. God is not distracted like that. The next word, the next verb that David uses, light up or enlighten, means to make luminous. And it's both literal, like lighting a lamp, and also metaphorically, like the way David is using it here. When we have light, we can see clearly. Have you ever tried reading in a dimly lit area? For example, if you try to go and read in the back of the corner of the, the, the stage here, our natural tendency is going to be to move toward a, an area of better light so we can see. What David is praying for here is not that the Lord would light a lamp or asking for greater power, candle power in his flashlight. This is a prayer for a metaphorical light, God's wisdom to help him understand the solution to the problem that he's facing. David follows these three requests to consider, answer, and light up with three reasons for his requests. And each of these reasons start with the word lest. The first one is, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Consider the seriousness of David's prayer here. If he doesn't get the spiritual wisdom that he's praying for, he's going to die, he's going to encounter defeat by his enemy, or he's going to end up slipping from his obedience to God. That's what he's talking about when he says his foes rejoice because he is shaken. How often do we consider this statement, this concept? 
Do we pray that God will give us wisdom to keep us obedient to Him? This was a challenge to me as I was preparing this sermon. I often pray that I would reflect Christ well or that I would grow in Christ-likeness, but it hasn't always occurred to me in my prayers that if I fail to be obedient to God, it gives an enemy, it gives an opportunity for those who want to mock Christ and Christians. In verse 5, having prayed for wisdom, David remembers his past experiences with God's faithfulness. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Notice the shift in verb tenses that he uses here. He starts in the past tense. I have trusted in your love. That's something that he's experienced in previous times. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He moves into the future at this point, looking forward. It's an interesting contrast between verse 4 and verse 5. His enemies are rejoicing because he has shaken. David is looking forward to rejoicing in God's salvation. And this is the way we are to build ourselves up in our faith. We look back at the faithfulness of God in the past, we look forward to the promises of God in the future, and we bring both of those together to stand on and build our faith in the trial that we're facing in the present. Verse 6 completes David's resolution. And what a change from, from verse 1, isn't it? In contrast to the panic and despair that David was experiencing in the beginning of the psalm, he concludes Psalm 13 with a joyful confidence, rejoicing in God's salvation and, God's, and his God's incredible generosity to him. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This parallels James chapter 1, 2 to 8, where James exhorts us to count it all joy when we face various trials. James challenges us to pray for wisdom, just as David did in our passage today. James reminds us that God will liberally give us wisdom when we pray for it. Then we, like David, can worship the Lord with joy because our amazing, unchanging God has dealt bountifully with us despite the trials that we're encountering. Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced God's salvation in your life. You've certainly had your share of discouragement and dis despair, but you don't feel like you have a direction to turn. Friend, you don't have a direction to turn. You'll con continue to experience the emptiness and sorrow in your own soul until you come to the end of your own resources, as David talked about in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 13. There's only one way to get peace with God, and that is by agreeing with God that you have broken His law that there is nothing that you can do to save your soul from the just judgment that is coming, and your only hope is to believe that Jesus Christ came as a man to live a perfect life, die on the cross for the sins that you and I have committed, and then rose on the third day to prove that His sacrifice for sin was sufficient. This isn't a quick fix for problems, but it's the only fix for yours and my greatest problem. Your circumstances will not necessarily get easier, but you can have peace and joy knowing that even when the world seems to be falling apart, God, you can know that God will give you wisdom to know how to live for Him. 
He who has saved you from the penalty of sin is faithful. When it seems like your life is falling apart, as David seemed to think in Psalm 13, we need to remember that God is not defined by our circumstances. We read over and over in Scripture of the transcendence of God, that His ways are higher than our ways, that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't understand the mind of God, but we must understand that He is working all things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. As we close this service, I'd love to read a number of passages of Scripture that remind us of the character of God in the hope that we'll accomplish several actions. One, that will, it will encourage you if you're discouraged. Number two, that it will strengthen you if you're feeling weak or inadequate for your daily grind. And three, that it will provide hope and encourage to build yourselves up in your most holy faith, as Jude says. So I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible. It'll be on the screen behind me. Write down the ref, but read it in your own Bible if you, if you brought one. Write it down for future use, or just listen and meditate as I read these passages on the character of God. Deuteronomy 23 verses 26 to 27, says, There is none like God, O Jeshurun, that's another name for Israel, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in His majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And then another, another translation says, your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9a, which I quoted before, from the New King James says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. Isaiah 41, verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And a few verses later in 41.13, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Remember who's speaking? The Lord, the self-existent, eternal one who is not limited by anything. Isaiah 49, verse 14 to 16. But Zion has said, it's another way of saying Israel, Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. That is the Lord speaking. As we move into the New Testament, Romans chapter 8 verse 31 to 39, talking about the promise and the faithfulness of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was also raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Paul is saying, if I forgot anything else, it's covered in that phrase. None of that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you're serving the Lord, friends, it doesn't matter what your circumstances look like. If you're serving the Lord, it's not in vain. Ephesians 2, 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do more, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power I work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is able to do us more than you can ask or think if you are facing a difficult time. Philippians 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is doing the work in you. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We need to set our minds on things above, where Christ is. And the, the last one, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's the part I want to emphasize. Looking to Jesus, the author and founder of our faith, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I remember I it in a different passage, different version. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured, such, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not we grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, sometimes we feel like David did at the beginning of Psalm chapter 13. We feel like you've forgotten us, that we are separated from you, and that we have to solve our own problems. Lord, help our unbelief. As the song we sang earlier, 
Make our hearts believe, O Lord. Forgive us for forgetting us, for forgetting that you love us with an unshakable, steadfast, and unchanging love, and that you are working out all things for good to those of us who love you and who have been called according to your purpose. Heavenly Father, for those who might be here and have not responded to that call to repentance from their sin and exercising faith in Jesus' sacrifice for them, I pray that this would be the day. I pray that you would bring them to an end of their own strength and their own ingenuity and that they would surrender their lives to you. Lord, help us to reflect you well this week to our spouses, to our families, our friends, our co-workers, and anyone else that we might have the opportunity to inter interact with this week. I pray that as a church, we would be a light in this community and that through that witness, you would be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for the privilege we have of reading it and understanding it. And I pray that you would give us the strength and ability to obey it as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.